You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, December 12, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys this morning. I thought there's no better way to begin our time together in this part of our service than with a little pop quiz. You like pop quizzes, right? Yep. Calvin, you're going to answer all these, all right? Pop quiz. It's not even Bible trivia, so don't, don't freak out. Who, who in here, and those of you up there who can look down at my podium, don't read my notes, so you can't answer. Who in here can tell me what life-changing, world-changing event happened in 1440? Come on, scholars. Middle school students, come on. 1440. Technically, history records its first mention in 1439 in a lawsuit, but 1440 is when it's recorded in history. Tim, you can't answer either. 1440, history records the life-changing, world-changing event of the invention of the printing press. Right? Yeah, I knew it. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) life has not been the same since that year. I'll give you another chance. This is a little bit easier, right? 1517, on the heels of the printing press. Ah, Martin Luther ignites the Protestant Reformation as the Bible is able to be printed, translated, and sent out into the language of the people. Life again would never be the same on earth. But that was kind of a toss-up. That was still kind of Religious trivia. I'll give you another one real quick. 1879. Come on. Thomas Edison demonstrated success in the incandescent electric light bulb. Life never going to be the same. Just like it would not be the same after 1915 when Alexander Graham Bell made the first transcontinental phone call. Everyday life for those on this planet was never going to be the same. Now, you don't like pop quizzes. I don't like pop quizzes. You don't like memorizing dates. I didn't like memorizing dates. I'm watching my kids have to do it. They don't like memorizing dates, but I suppose as long as school's still going, we'll still make people memorize dates. And as long as we do it, sociologists say that within at least a few generations, probably three generations from now, Kids will add to that list of world-changing, life-transforming dates the year 2007. Do you know what happened in 2007 that changed the way that we live forever? On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. And in preparation for that unveiling, a couple of things happened at the end of 2006, but took place, that kind of rooted in 2007, along with the unveiling. You know what they were? Facebook opened itself up to anyone 13 years of age or older with a valid email address. Previously, it was a college, high school thing. At the same time in 2007, at South by Southwest, this other company that no one could ever pronounce and very few people had heard of called Twitter, you know, T-W-T-T-R changed its structure, changed its mission, rebranded itself as what you and I now know as Twitter and launched an absolute transformation in the way that people communicated. 
2007, sociologists say, will go down on that list for future generations to learn along with all these other dates because it is when sociologists mark the beginning of what we call the digital age. And when the digital age actually began, life was forever changed. I mean, there are some people in this room who don't know of life without the digital age. Not just born after 2007, but born into a time in which by the time you came of age and reason to interact with this world, it was already rolling. You don't know what it is to not have those things. But as we have begun learning about these things, we're starting to wake up to the fact that it's, it's not just our wallets that are paying the price for the digital age. Our souls are paying a heavy price as well. See, back in 2007, on January 9th, Steve Jobs didn't just pitch a piece of equipment. He pitched a vision of life, a vision of life that began to capture all of these kind of scattered and disparate longings in our hearts. He he didn't release a, a spec sheet to the world. He created an event, an event that was orchestrated entirely around telling a story, a story about a new way of living a new way of living where you and I could begin to experience the fullness of life, the flourishing that our hearts were desperate before, and it was all going to be brought to you by a device. You could literally begin to have the whole world in the palm of your hands. Now, the result of all this advancement, there have been tremendous results, advances, because of the digital age and the technology has come. I'm not knocking the advancements that have come in interconnectivity and all those kinds of things, But there have been equally, if not greater, downfalls and addictions that threaten us to the level of our soul, one of which has been amplified through the beginnings of the digital age, and that is our addiction to noise. You and I unconsciously seem to require a level of noise and stimulation at all times, We get in our cars, we turn on the podcast, the radio, the something. We stand in line, Lord forbid, for two or three minutes at Chipotle and we're on our phones having to get some kind of thing. We have headphones in our ears all hours of the day, regardless of what we're doing, even when we're talking to other people. It's crazy. A few months ago in the Sunday paper, I don't remember the title of the cartoon. I should have cut it out, but it looked like one of those old family circle cartoons. You know, know, talk about that kind of image. And it was a husband and a wife, and she was sitting in the lounge chair in the living room, and she was talking to her husband, and the the conversation went like this. She said, honey, do you mind turning on the TV for me and going in the other room and turning the radio on up a little bit louder? I'm having a hard time concentrating. Dan Foley, not a follower of Jesus, excuse me, Devin Foley, he wrote an article for the intellectual takeout, and In that article, he said, I think we've trained ourselves through a constant barrage of noise to ignore the nagging and quiet inner voice. We aren't meant for this noisy existence. In silence, we're forced to confront that which is not right with ourselves, while in noise, we can escape. The noise doesn't make things right, but we simply move from one noise to another while never learning how to just be to have a sense that with me, all is right. And this increasing addiction to the noise 
of our world has led to increasing amounts of distraction in our lives. I mean, no shame here at all, but some of you are not going to make it through this service without scrolling your phone, without checking to see if for some reason, for the first time in history, the NFL has changed the schedule for this afternoon. Uh, You know who's playing who and when it's going to happen, but you're going to have to check. Go into the same news feed you went to 15 minutes ago. You won't make it through without doing it. We go out and have dinner and turn around and there's two people on a date and they're on their phones. We go out and watch our kids and I've got teenagers and you go out and you watch them with each other and there's six of them sitting in a circle all on their phones. And they text each other across a five foot distance. We all just have to have some kind of distraction, constantly getting this input. It's crazy. And with all the distraction that's mounting in the noise, we're literally unable to be present in a moment or with a person. We have the world the way we want it, literally in our hand. Some of, some of us even sleep with it, sleep with our phone on right next to us. And if that's not enough, some of us even wear it on our wrist. And if you're not aware, your body literally vibrates when something wants your attention. All day long, you now get a physical impulse of distraction every time something is wired to want your attention. And it's all the result of intentionality. You may have heard the name Tristan Harris. Some of you may have heard Tristan Harris. Former executive at Google, worked with Apple, all these other people. Um, He is the one who is at the center of the documentary called The Social Dilemma. He's now the CEO of the Center for Humane Technology. But he's been arguing for years that software developers should have to subscribe to the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm to people. Because having been in the industry, he knows what's going on and why it's actually happening. In 2019, he spoke at a conference in San Francisco, and in his lecture, he coined the phrase human downgrading. Human downgrading, he said, is a description of an interconnected system of mutually reinforcing harms that create addiction, distraction, and polarization. Human downgrading weakens human capacity in order to capture human attention. All intentional, literally downgrading you as a human in order to distract you and get your attention. Just about a year and a half before he gave that lecture and coined that phrase, a writer named Andrew Sullivan wrote an article in the New York Magazine. Again, not a follower of Jesus. The article was titled, I Used to Be a Human Being. Subtitle, An Endless Bombardment of News and Gossip and Images Has Rendered Us Manic Information Addicts. It Broke Me. It Might Break You Too. Listen to him from the article. Just read you a second. Sullivan said, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under all the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise doesn't relent, we might even forget we have a soul. Modernity slowly weakened spirituality, he said, by design and accident. In favor of commerce, it downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. 
The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of our world has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. And so he said this, again, not as a follower of Jesus, but listen, if churches came to understand that the greatest threat to their faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin again to appeal anew to a frazzled and digital world. Did you hear him? Were you emailing while I was reading that? In a world of human downgrading, the cultural moment that we live in, a chief question we have to ask and answer is, how is it with your soul? You know, one of the things that came out of John Wesley's prolific ministry was the beginning of what you and I know of as small groups. He was the one to really first make that a part of the everyday life of the church. And when his groups would gather together, they all asked and answered the same question. One question started the whole thing. It was that question. How is it with your soul? You know, Jesus was very clear to his disciples that it's entirely possible for you and I to to be outwardly successful, to have dreamed the dream and lived the dream we thought we all wanted, yet at the same time, lose our soul. To gain it all and yet forfeit our soul. We can begin to recognize our soul being lost, being hardened, being dulled, as we begin to recognize that we're feeling very busy and yet empty at the same time when our emotions are right on the edge of being out of our control, out of our ability to even manage. When we find ourselves in this busyness and emptiness, living in unhealthy ways with our own bodies, not being able to be present in a moment or with a person, that's when we have all the outer success, but just tremendous inner chaos. Like last week, we talked about that jar of water full of river water shaken up, all the sediment, all the craziness just spinning around chaotically. That's what it's like on the inside. You and I have accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge, and we have all manner of accomplishments in our life, but if we're honest, there is an ache inside our soul for a connection, a knowing and a being known to God, the very thing that we were created for and made for. Well, I really am glad you're here this morning. I I really do love you. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. This Advent season, we are leaning all of our weight into the angst and the longing that's marked this time of the year in the life of the church for millennia. We're asking and considering that question, how is it really with your heart? How is it really with your soul? Are we ready for Jesus' invitation to the fullness of life. Do you remember that from last week? Are you tired? Are you worn out, Jesus said? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly.
learning to keep company with Jesus, learning to abide in him. That is the essential operating dynamic for the life of a disciple of Jesus. That is the big picture that we have been considering for this season. Jesus invites us to a free and light life with him. And at the same time, in this season and in this angst, Advent is also a reminder of our time and the space between that God did take on flesh. We are reminded as we move into the beginnings of the Christmas season on December 25th that he took on physical form. In Christ, in Jesus, he was fully human. And he lived the life that you and I were created to live on this earth. He then died in our place for our sins. He took our sins upon his body on that cross and he absorbed in our place the just judgment and wrath of God for our sin. So much so that you could even say that he took that thing into the tomb with him so that for those of us who by the grace of God through faith in him see him and give ourselves over to him, we can know there's no more condemnation because of it. Three days later, we know the story. He rose to the newness of life, defeating Satan's sin and death itself, that you and I might in him truly live. That we would have the fullness of life that we were made for. That real transformation, real change is possible. That we could live the free and light life with him. And the reality of it is, if we're really honest, we we naturally tend to go in the opposite direction of freedom and flourishing. But my hope is, and my prayer is, as we consider these realities in this Advent season, that we would come back to the one who has called us his friend, who died in our place for our sins, that we might enter into this life with him and into this dynamic of transformation. Friends, the cost of listening and not following is tremendous. And so the question this morning as we move on is, is there an unforced rhythm of grace in Jesus' life that he calls us as his apprentices to learn from him? An unforced rhythm of grace for a distracted and noise-addicted people. Well, there is. There is. We see it as a pattern and a rhythm in Jesus' life. It's the rhythm of spiritual solitude. This was an everyday reality of Jesus' life. Jesus was intentional to make space to be with God and God alone, to be present with the one who was always present with him. I, I want us to watch this work itself out in Jesus' life. And as his apprentices who desire nothing more than to be with him, that we might become like him, to learn his unforced rhythms in order to recover by his grace our life that we were created for, I want you to see it that we might learn to walk in it. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 3. I'm only going to be able to pull out a few of these for the sake of time, but you'll, you'll get the picture. Matthew chapter 3. We'll start in verse 16. 
It might be a familiar story to you, but I've learned to read part of it in a new way. Matthew 3.16, it's the baptism of Jesus, and Matthew records when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from there, up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is where chapters and verses and all that kind of stuff kind of get in the way of a good moment. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, you'll see as we go through these, this word wilderness is translated in the Gospels in different ways. It's often called a desolate place or a lonely place or a quiet place. You'll see it right here. So you might be picturing one thing in your mind, but it's trying to communicate this, this place of solitude. It's quiet. It's, it's lonely. It's desolate. And the Spirit led him into this place where he would be tempted by the devil. But that was after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So here we have Jesus at the very start of his public ministry. And the Holy Spirit leads him into 40 days of solitude. 40 days of being with the Father by the Spirit and with him alone. Fasting from food, we'll deal with that another time, but feasting on the words that he had just heard. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Forty days, no distractions, no one pulling on him, no external expectations to have to deal with, just with the Father, by the Spirit, for the Father and the Spirit alone. This is my beloved son. Now, here's where I've always misread the story. I've always misread the story through my own experience and, and things that I have tried to connect it to to try to understand what was happening. Most specifically, if you're my age or you're maybe even younger, you've been aware of it. But I tend to read this story much like the Rocky movies work themselves out. You know, it doesn't matter if it was Clubber Lang or Apollo Creed or even Drago. It doesn't matter who it was. There comes a point in the fight where Rocky's on the ropes, right? He's been beaten to a literal pulp. And then a moment happens and the thing turns and he always wins. If you haven't seen Rocky, I grew up loving wrestling, real wrestling, professional wrestling. The same thing was always true with Hulk Hogan. Every single match, it didn't matter if it was the Iron Sheik or Nikolai Volkov, Iran or Russia, it didn't matter. He was beaten down, and then a moment would happen, right? He grabbed the rope. You remember what happened, you wrestling fans? You can admit it. It's okay. Man, he starts shaking his hand, and you knew it was all about to change, and Hulk was going to win. That's the way I've always read this story. Jesus has gone alone for 40 days, 40 nights. He's fasted. He's weak. He can barely crawl, probably dragging himself. And the devil looks at him and says, ah, now I've got the perfect time, the perfect moment. He's at his weakest. Let me come at him. It was Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, who helped me see that I've been reading this story all wrong. The devil didn't come at Jesus at his weakest moment. He had just been with the Father by the Spirit for 40 days, feasting on the words of the Father, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. The devil didn't come to him at his weakest. The devil came to him at his strongest. The devil had no chance. If you're the Son of God, what do you mean if? 40 days I've been with the Father by the Spirit hearing, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I know who I am. And come on, man. 
He didn't come at Jesus in this moment of great weakness like Rocky or Hulk and he had to fight his way back. No, Jesus was at his strongest. And the devil didn't stand a chance. I find it fascinating that at the beginning of Jesus' very public ministry, he, he didn't start with a, a business plan or a ministry plan with all of his values and all of his vision and all he's going to do. The Spirit literally led him to be with the Father for the Father. He gets away from it all. Now, you might not be embarking on a new ministry venture tomorrow or a new business venture tomorrow, but by the grace of God, if you open up your eyes tomorrow morning and take a breath, you're starting a new day. What does it look like? How are you going into it? How do you start it? Spiritual solitude is the intentional cultivation of a time and space to be with God and God alone. It's not me time. Me time is when you do what you want on your own terms. Spiritual solitude is a rhythm of being present with God and letting Him be Him. You simply being receptive to Him. It's not me time, and it's not the same thing as being alone. We're alone all the time during the day. But alone time is just time we, we fill with other kinds of distractions. We turn on the radio, we turn on the computer, we turn on the TV, we turn on Netflix, we pick up our whatever. We're alone all the time. Being alone is not the same thing as spiritual solitude. Spiritual solitude is making intentional time and space to be with God and God alone. It's making space to keep company with Jesus, the one who is always present with us, whether we're aware of it or not. But if you got to keep turning, go to Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 6. I want to show you a couple more. Mark chapter 6, lest you think this is a one-off occasion in Jesus' life. Mark 6. We'll start in verse 30. Jesus has sent out his 12 apostles to go and to teach and, and to do ministry, and they've now returned to him. And so in Mark 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. And what does Jesus say? Verse 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. And so in verse 32, they went away. They took Jesus' instruction, and they went to a desolate place. Now here they are, they've come back. They've been teaching, they've been preaching, they've been seeing the Spirit work through them, miracles being done in all the places that they had gone they come back and report it to Jesus. And what do we expect Jesus to say? That's great. Here's the map of all the villages we've got to get to. We need to hit this village and this village and this village. I've heard of this, this colony and this institute of, of lepers and, and, and disease and those who've been cast away. All right, you go here and you go here and you do this and you do this. Man, we're going. But it's not what he does. There's so much going on that the most important thing for Jesus' disciples and for himself is to get away. Yep, all that happened, it's great. All the more reason you need to be alone with the Father and the Father himself. You don't need more distraction. 
You need the quiet, the rhythm of solitude with God. And the funny thing is, in, in Mark 6, if you keep reading the story, they, they go away to a desolate place, but the people figure out what's happening, and they chase them down. So here they are trying to have that solitude with God to go and to just be in the quiet and in the stillness and, and let God be God in their life, but the people chase them down and want more from them. So what does Jesus do? And he sees the crowd, and he has compassion on them, so he continues to teach them in the moment. He feeds them miraculously, but in the end, he hasn't lost sight of what's most important for the disciples and what he needs, has he? Go read the story. After the miracle, he puts the disciples in the boat and he says, go. You still need to go. And Jesus dismisses the crowds. He, he runs interference for the disciples in the moment. And he deals with the crowds. But when he dismisses the crowd, what does he do? He goes away into the lonely place, the desolate place that he could be with the Father. That's how important this rhythm of solitude is to Jesus. He knew that even in the midst of all the success, all the accolades, all the attention, all the expectation, what was most needed, what the soul most needed was to be alone with God, to be with the Father. See, solitude, it's the one place, one writer said, where we can begin to gain freedom from the forces of society that would otherwise relentlessly seek to mold us and shape us into its image. He knew it. And so it was a regular rhythm in his life. In fact, Mark chapter 1, you can go read it later on this week in verse 35. It tells a story, very rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus left and he went to a desolate place. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him. And they said, look, everyone's looking for you. He didn't care. He knew what he needed. He knew what was most important. It was his regular rhythm, his pattern to be alone with the Father. You can go read in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. It says this, Now even more reports about him were coming from abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The more demands on Jesus increased, the more his rhythm was to get away. To make space to be with the Father and the Father alone. And so for time's sake, expedience's sake, I want to at least say this as we consider it. No one in this room, no one hearing my voice, even if you're listening online, no one here is in greater demand than Jesus was. You want to try that one one more time? No one in here is in greater demand than Jesus was. And he's inviting us as his disciples, as his apprentices, to learn this rhythm of grace a rhythm of relationship. Spiritual solitude, it's not a practice that you and I have to perform. It's not a duty that you and I have to accomplish. It's a rhythm of grace that God uses to reestablish and deepen the relationship, the connection, the presence that is ours by His grace. It's a habit and a rhythm 
that habituates our hearts to keep company with Jesus, to make intentional space to be with him and him alone. The same way we would a, a good friend, the same way we would a, hopefully a spouse, the same way some of you would hopefully make intentional time to be with and to be known by and to get to know those who might be potential future spouses. It takes the intentionality to carve out the time to be with and with alone. And when you're with him, you learn to be present to him. See, the hardest part of spiritual solitude, apart from just starting and carving out an intentional time and space to be with Jesus, the hardest part, if we're going to be really honest, and we'll spend the rest of our time this morning on this, is the distractions that come. The distractions that come from even beginning to live this rhythm out, but the distractions that come as we begin to walk this rhythm out. You know, Psalm 4610 has been bouncing around in my heart and in my head for a while now as I've considered this rhythm of Jesus's and looking at my own life as his disciple. The, the psalmist says in Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Be still. It's the unforced rhythm of grace and spiritual solitude that helps us begin to see just how chaotic we are on the inside. How hard it is to just be still and be with God. I mean, that's his invitation and his instruction to us, and yet we still can't do it. That's a problem. And part of the problem is this rhythm exposes us to, it confronts us with, in some sense, a mirror, our own predisposition to have to do, our own predisposition to have to perform. You're hearing me talk about spiritual solitude and carving out this time, and some of you, the achievers in here in the religious sense, are already thinking what books of the Bible you want to read, what other books you want to take with you, how you're going to journal it, what you want to say, what you want to do. You're already filling it up with all this stuff. We're so wired in this way. But spiritual solitude, in light of the rhythms of grace in Jesus' life, it's what can be called a container rhythm. In time, we learn how other rhythms of grace fold themselves into this time of solitude, how, how we keep company with Jesus in, in this intentional time of being with him in his word, how we keep company with Jesus in this intentional time with him as we pray and as we talk with him. There's all kinds of things, but here's the thing I want you to consider and I want to put it in front of us this morning because of our need and where we are. I want to talk about you and I intentionally creating space and time to be with Jesus and Jesus alone in silence. In silence. Not doing anything. Not saying anything. It is probably the most difficult and at the same time most needed rhythm in the age in which we live, the time of human downgrading. And I will tell you, it's way easier to read about and talk about than actually do. I don't know what it is at times to sound like David who said, my soul waits in silence for God alone. 
My soul waits, twice he says it, in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. I mean, long before the digital age and the culture of human downgrading, Jim Elliott, a missionary, the martyr, he knew the dangers. He said, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize us on three elements, noise, hurry, and crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. Silence in and of itself is, is shaping. It's forming. And carving out time to be alone with God and for God alone and to be with him in silence. And it begins to show us just how addicted we are, not just to noise and distraction, but how addicted we are to words. And our stream of the Protestant evangelical church, it came out of a number of battles that occurred in the 60s and 70s over the authority and the inerrancy of God's word and the role of God's word for the life of a believer. Yes and amen, but we became a very cognitive people, a very knowledge, information-oriented people on the backside of that, and we've lost the reality of presence with him. And there's an ache in our heart for this very presence that is ours by his grace and his spirit working in us that we've somehow disconnected ourselves from as we made the whole life of being his disciple up here in our head. And we're a very wordy people. We love the sound of our own voices. And the digital information age has only made us more impulsive in our speech, not more thoughtful in our speech, only more impulsive in all of it. Silence is shaping and it's forming because we're so addicted to our words. Don Whitney, who's a professor at Southern Seminary, said, when you practice silence and solitude, you find that you don't need to say as many things as you think you needed to say. In silence, we learn to rely more on God's control in situations where we would normally feel compelled to speak or speak too much. Dallas Willard probably sums up what some of you were thinking. He said, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does. It throws us upon the stark reality of our life. It reminds us of death because in death, there is only us and God. And what happens if there's very little between us? Silence is frightening. Because as we make time to be with the one that we were made for, we realize that maybe there wasn't as much between us in that sense of relationship and intimacy and connection as we once thought. And what we begin to see in the difficulty and the distraction of trying to be with him and for him in solitude and silence is that we're way more addicted to our our identities and our work and our doings than we ever thought the different roles we play in life. And why do I say that? Because the minute you begin to try to be intentional in being with God, for God, in the rhythm of solitude and silence, all of a sudden you're confronted with all the things you're not able to do. All the boxes you want to tick in the day, all the things that you want to get done, all the ways you want to make a name for yourself, you can't do it. You're intentionally setting those things aside to be with him and him alone. And all of a sudden, we're confronted for a little while on just how much satisfaction our hearts and our souls get out of all of those things. Just how much of our significance we're drawing from them. One writer said, you'll come face to face with your addictions. And this is what she means. 
the activities and experiences your soul feeds on, your ego feeds on. To literally remove yourself for a period of time from that which you have silently been building your identity on, your family, your kids, your career, your ministry, whatever, it can feel impossible. Because you're letting go of control. You're letting go of accomplishment. Your confession is being practically challenged. God is sovereign, yes and amen, but is he sovereign with those things you're not going to be able to get completed right now? Is he in control of all the things that you're not doing right now? Is he taking you, do you really believe it, in his sovereignty and his goodness towards you? Is he taking you to where he needs to take you and where he wants to take you for your good and his glory? The rhythms of silence and spiritual solitude, they they habituate our soul to surrender, to give up control. And it's something we don't like, but we have to practice. And if we would sit with him consistently enough and long enough, we'll begin to recognize that in those moments, he's beginning to re-narrate our life. As we walk in this unforced rhythm of grace, we begin to hear him reminding us of whose we are and who we are. He's reminding us and helping us to see what's real, reality from his point of view. And it frees us from the enslavement to the demands and the expectations of the world around us. Spiritual solitude and silence are a rhythm that allow us to sit still with God long enough for the chaos and the sediment in our soul to settle. Like that jar of river water. It just has to be able to sit still long enough for it all to settle. At first, it's crazy. We'll talk about it in a minute, but I'm talking like five minutes, ten minutes, it's crazy. We recognize just how chaotic our souls really are. You'll immediately begin to feel tired and you'll feel guilty about it. You'll press through and it'll seem pointless and empty and you'll feel ashamed about that. You'll feel all the feels you've been trying to avoid maybe and you'll recognize the inner chaos in your heart and you'll immediately want to cut bait and run. I was introduced to this reality about seven or eight years ago in a cohort of of pastors that I've been a part of now for almost a decade and it came out of a study recognizing that evangelical Protestant leaders in this country were leaving the ministry at unprecedented levels, partly because we lacked any real spiritual vitality in our own lives and any real emotional awareness of our own souls. Those were two of the reasons. And in this cohort, as we began to explore this, we began to explore this rhythm of silence and solitude. And at one particular gathering, we got together and we were going to start by practicing this rhythm together. And so we split up in the, the place where we were. We were in a place with like 50 acres. We split up. We went away and we tried it for 30 minutes of silence and solitude to be with God and for God. And it was a nightmare in my soul. It's a nightmare. For half the time, I, I wondered if I was going to come back with something as profound as Jeff did or Ted did or Elliot did. I sat there sometimes thinking about what we were going to have for lunch. It was like 400 squirrels going around in my head couldn't keep control of them. Like, what is this thing? And then I started to feel things, things I didn't want to feel, things I had tucked way back. And as it began to happen, what I was learning was that my own soul was telling me that I'm living in such a way that I can't even be present in a relationship 
with the one my heart wants to be with the most. But as we keep company with Jesus, learning his rhythms, practicing them, there's a spiritual law of gravity that begins to take place and your soul will begin to settle. You'll begin to decompress from the noise and the stimulation of modern life. You'll slow down and you'll feel the feels that you've been running away from. You'll come face to face with what's on the inside, the good, the bad, and You've the You've been ugly. listening to a sermon preached You'll by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, or lack of desire for, for more information about God. the church and hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. keeping company with the one who gave his life that you could be with him. It's safe. And as you sit with him and keep company with him, in his kindness and goodness, you'll begin to hear his voice cut through. This is what's true. This is not true. You'll begin to get the right perspective on who you are in your life with him. And you'll be with him. His very presence, you'll be with him. And that thing which we've cut ourselves off of because we've majored so hard in our brains that we've, we've cut our affections off from him will begin to get again because we're keeping company with him. But it's hard. And if it's so hard, why should we do it? Well, because it's a thing our hearts long for the most. It's what we were made for. The rhythms of spiritual solitude and silence help to take us there. And we do it because our longing to be with him, to be present with him, to keep company with him is greater than the discomfort that we fear. So how do you start? You start right where you are, right? Maybe at some point this week, five minutes, 10 minutes. Just carving out an intentional space and time to be with God and for God and not do anything with it. You know, Susanna Wesley, John Wesley, Charles Wesley's mom, uh, had another other assembly. It's a very large family. And it was said of Susanna Wesley that when she needed silence and solitude to be with God, she would simply bring her apron up over her head. <laughs> and everyone knew that I'm not going to be with you right now because I'm going to be with God. Sometimes you just have to do what you need to do. But you start where you are, five, ten minutes. My wife has taught me more about this than anyone else has. She has a spot, and she gets up before the rest of us, and she has a spot down, downstairs and off our kitchen where she sits up against the wall. She sits on a floor pillow, back against the wall, and she just sits, her hands on her lap open, and she just sits with him, and she's just with him. Some days there are tears. Some days there's quiet. Some days he's just taking her where he wants to take her and where she needs to go, and she's just with him. Because it's what our heart craves. So you just start where you are. Find a space, find a time, and sit. Put your feet on the floor, sit on the ground, maybe open up your hands to be receptive. Just breathe. That's not Buddhist, that's not Eastern. God created your breath. You realize that, right? It's part of being human. You just breathe. And maybe just say, here I am, Lord. And just be with him. Just be with him. Let him be him. Let him do what he's going to do. And trust him that it's enough. That it's enough. 
You don't have to perform anything. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't come to him with any kind of agenda or you don't even bring words to him. It's just him. It's not your time to tell him to do something. You're just being present to him and letting him be him. It's not about you achieving anything. You don't go texting your friends how you just rocked solitude and silence. (laughs) It's just a rhythm of his grace that forms you and shapes you. And even if it feels like nothing is happening, even if you walk away going, what in the world was all of that? You're not trying to make something happen. You're trusting that he by his spirit as you are with him is doing what only he can do. So don't judge yourself at it. Don't walk away going, I'm terrible at silence and solitude. Let it be in his hands. Just push out the judgment and the evaluation. He's using this rhythm to form you and to shape you, and it adds up. And in the moment, it might not feel like anything, but here, I promise, at time, what you'll see is that even if it doesn't feel like anything, and it's chaotic, and you can't seem to make sense of it, and it seems pointless, you will in time walk out of this time with him, and you will walk into your day differently. You might find yourself responding to a difficult situation with more patience. You might find yourself speaking in a way that's more reflective of his character, you might find yourself restraining your speech when you don't need to speak. You might find yourself being with someone and present with someone enough to be able to hear the Lord's voice leading you and how you could encourage them. But it starts by being with him. And listen, I am one who preaches this way better than I practice it. I'm still with you learning these rhythms of grace and learning from those who have gone before me, like Susanna Wesley, like A.W. Tozer, who said he would retire from the world each day to some private spot, even if it be only his bedroom. For a while, he said, I retreated to the furnished room for want of a better place, and I would stay in this place till the surrounding noises would fade out in my heart and a sense of God's presence with me enveloped me, and I would listen until I could hear his inward voice and begin to recognize it. And I learned to stop competing with others, to give myself to God and, and then be what and who he's made me to be. Same with Sarah Edwards and David Brainerd and all the saints of old who understood this. For millennia, disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus have been learning this rhythm from him. Many would put it at the top of their lists. We're learning his unforced rhythm of grace. And to say yes to his invitation and yes to his rhythm, it means we have to learn to say no to things, like our phones. You don't need to leave your phone and your computer in another place. You can't handle the temptation to have it with you. You'll need to tell people what you're doing. You may need to say to your family or your coworkers or your friends, I'm not going to be available to you during this time because I'm completely available to God during this time, right? But here's the thing. As one writer said, as sleep and rest are needed each day for the body, so silence and solitude are needed each day for the soul. These rhythms of grace have a way of airing out the mind and ironing out the wrinkles of your heart. So hear Jesus. He says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Are you ready to keep company with Jesus? Are you ready to begin recovering the life that he created you for? His invitation is an invitation to enter into the connection, the relationship, the intimacy with him, the one who is always with us in the noise. 
to be present with in relation and communion to the one who is with us even when our awareness of him has dulled by the distraction and the forces of human downgrading. Come to me. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This morning, we are going to respond to God's word as we do, but maybe you'll find a heightened emphasis on what we do next. We're going to respond to God's word by giving you a moment of silence. We're going to sit to be present with the Lord, the one who is with us even while we feel distracted. We're going to give you a minute to just sit in silence, to deal with him, to let him deal with you. And then the music will begin to play. And those of you who, by grace through faith in Christ, have believed upon Jesus, you'll be invited to come forward to receive communion, remembering his body broken, his blood shed, that God came near. Emmanuel, God with us, that we might keep company with him and recover the life that we were made for. So here we go. Are you ready? Close your eyes. Breathe. Here I am, Lord.